This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am your hostess, as we established last week, Amy Beth Shaver, or ABS, whatever you want to call. It's fine. But we're here with Larry, the man, the myth, the legend. Sir, your man in the field. I'm good. It's you know, it's it's a beautiful day outside. Yeah, it is. Uh, the weather feels just right. Yep, it you does. You don't quite need a coat. Nope. And so everything's fine. Yeah, it's uh, it's it started out a little chilly this morning. I sat by the fire and had a cup of coffee, and uh, but it's heading for a beautiful weekend, and I'm looking forward to that. But I have to throw this out. Do you know what today is? Well, yesterday was National Firstborns Day, so I don't know. Okay, I, was I didn't know so that. So fascinated with that. Well, what day. is that? I don't know. It's a made-up day, but I enjoyed it because I could send something around to Emmy and Chris because you know we're firstborns. Well, not being a firstborn, I don't care. Okay, <laughs> so well, I didn't figure you enough were. Of that. Which is why I didn't send you the meme. <laughs> um, but today is Trafalgar Day. Do you know what Trafalgar Day is? Uh, I'm sure you're going to tell me. <laughs> it was on this day, October 21st of. 1805, that Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson defeated the combined French and Spanish fleets off of Cape Trafalgar, which is you know modern day Gibraltar, saving Britain from invasion. Mm. So, very very important day. Have you ever have you been to London? I have. Have you been to Trafalgar Square? Uh, yes, I have. Of course, you have. It's why the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery, right? And then you have um, Trafalgar Square, which was named for the battle, and then you have the 170 foot plinth, the uh, the column, what's called right. Nelson's Column, right. 170 feet, and on top of it is a 17 foot statue of Admiral Nelson. They said that he should be able to see the sea. So they placed him on it. He's looking out um, towards the sea, but it's a it's a it's a massive day in Britain, or at least it used to be. It still should be because Nelson, you know, probably along with Churchill and say maybe Elizabeth the first, is possibly the greatest national hero. But what's interesting is that they're now not really being taught the history. So I've stood there at Nelson's column just pretending to be a dumb tourist and stopping Brits and saying, can, can you tell me who that is? You know, who who is this? I don't know, some some military hero. They, they don't even know, which I think is quite sad. They don't know who Nelson is, but Nelson is, Nelson is important. Well, now I'm going to have to go find more about Nelson. There's a, um, a great movie with Lawrence Olivier and uh, Vivian, what was her name? Lee. Vivian Lee um, called uh, That Mrs. Hamilton, I think. Oh, okay. I will watch that. Chris Shaver is not here this weekend. Yeah. I will go watch that That's, movie. That's uh, about Nelson and Lady Hamilton. But okay. um, interesting, Nelson was killed in the Battle of Trafalgar. I have to throw this out because this is good. Nelson was killed in the Battle of Trafalgar by French... Um, Sniper, okay. who shot him, it entered him here, and it exited, um, you know, around his kidneys, and um, uh, that's because Nelson refused his uh, his officers didn't want him on deck, mm-hmm. and he felt that it was important that he be seen on deck, that his men see him and be inspired by his presence. So um, anyway, uh, over the course of a day, you know, he died, and they didn't bury him at sea, so they. <laughs> Because they thought we can't do this. He's a hero, you know. Right. He's he's our a national hero, so we dare not just dump his body into the sea. So do you know what they did to preserve his body? Probably I don't know. Had something to do with salt? Well, you're close. They shoved his body into a barrel of brandy. So they, also a they great pick, idea. They great idea. <laughs> they they pickled. Why him. Why didn't I think about they that? They pickled him. Of course they did. And brought him back to Britain so that he could be properly buried. And so he's buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. If you, the yes. crypt is yes. down below St. Paul's Cathedral, and there's a an enormous black marble tomb that says 
Nelson, mm. you know, on it. And when I was a student in Britain uh, many years ago, I was at Windsor Castle, and uh, it was it was a funny thing because um, I was looking at some some an enormous it looked like an enormous vase, and I asked. Um, you know, these guys that they place in the rooms, you know, kind of a security guard, you, you might say, but they're historians. Right. And I said, hey, can you tell me what that what that is? And he goes, it was a gift to Queen Victoria in 1850. It's made of malachite. Wow. Anyway, as I was walking off, I said, oh, well, that would have been a gift of, that would have been a gift of Tsar Alexander II. And he perked up uh-huh. and he said, why a man who knows his history. And, <laughs> That's good. And so he said, Aww. come with me. And so he took he at Windsor Castle? At Windsor Castle, no. he at the stanchion, he, you know, he removed it, had me come behind, and he started leading me on a behind no. the no, tours. He did not. No. And at one point he took a little box about this size mm. and he handed it to me. And I'm holding it, he said, Sir, do you know what you're holding there? And I said, no. He says, why, it's the bullet that killed Nelson himself. And it was oh, in a, it was in a, little, a little box, not out on display. It was out in, it was in some other stuff that they had sitting in the back. But anyway, so I have held the bullet that killed Lord Nelson. So there you go. Trafalgar Day, October 21st. From now on, I expect you to... Um, to celebrate it. Absolutely, I will. Within your family tonight. Uh, I will tonight. start this afternoon, and you know what? I will turn the meal I was going to prepare. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I'll just ditch that, <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll do some fish and chips. There you go. Honor. Or, you know, because Yorkshire pudding or something. Something wonderful that you can only get in London <laughs> that only tastes good there, even though we try our hardest. Indian food is great in London, but you know, I don't know that, I don't know that Lord Nelson was eating that, but... Um, he's probably eating fish and chips. Like, I'm just going to go like with Fish and chips cod. is safe. It's safe. You know, but see, you can go, go home, home and say to your family, "Today's Trafalgar Day." Did you guys know that? You know what? When I when I tell Chris about this, he'll be so impressed, and then he'll know. He already knew what we were doing today that we were recording podcasts, so he'll you go. He'll know. You, so I'm going to read about it. Go watch uh, Lady Hamilton or that that what that that woman that Hamilton woman. That I think Hamilton that's the, I think that's okay. the name of them. No, the I really will. I there really you go. Will. This is very exciting. You're all set. Okay, well, I mean... A little tidbit of information for you. And uh, what do you guys have on tap for the next couple of days? Um, Well, it's the weekend coming up, and so it is fall, so you can guess... Football. Football. We'll be watching some football. Try to get some writing done. I've got a trip I have to prepare for, get ready for, but... um, And, uh, you know, I think we have some grandbabies showing up this weekend, too, which will keep Lori very busy. (laughs) (laughs) Lori will sleep less this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your grandbabies are delightful. I haven't met them in person, but Lori and I are friends on Facebook. There you go. So I see all the pictures of the girls. There you go. And I must say I'm only, well, barely 12 weeks into this whole thing, but it's quite wonderful. It gets more interesting. It is wonderful. But you know, at the stage, at the stage, at the baby stage, they're not very interesting. Well, they're just kind of like a lump of sugar. Exactly. You know, but uh, they just they just my, eat and listen, poop and sleep. But That's I think it. my Rose is the smartest baby in the world because she's already smiling. There we and go. She's emoting and you know she's trying to let us know she's there. And we're like, I see you, Red. I see you, baby, Red. And it that she has red hair like her father. But before long, they're you know, they're, they're talking. They're they're they're. Um, I'm going to be her favorite. And why not? I mean, I've already told her prepare yourself. We are going to have a great time together. <laughs> so the one we do, she's like, "Oh, is this what you were mouthing is, to me all those years coming. ago?" Yes, this is coming. Yes. So yes, I I uh, am excited for the weekend. Excited for you guys to watch. Uh, do the little girls just follow you around? Um, well, uh, Elizabeth, who is you know she's a toddler, she just goes everywhere and is into everything. Yes. So she's uh, she tries to get into my humidor and into my cigars. Excellent. I don't know what it is about cigars, but I think that she will have to be watched carefully <laughs> that she might develop a nicotine habit, you know, because <laughs> she goes straight for the humidor every time. Um, Caroline is older. She's 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 bright. She is uh, ready to argue with her, you just like her father did when he was uh, when he was a little boy. 
Um, she is uh, she is very easy because she's very obedient, and um, she's very much a rules follower. Uh, you know, and I'm not really a big rules follower, so she's quick to remind me of rules that I'm not following. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was it, it was about a hundred degrees this summer, and I was filling up with gas, and she was in the car, so I left the car running. Oh, she did not like that at all. I can already she tell you. She rolled down the window and said, you're supposed to shut off the engine, you know, when you're getting gas. And I said, it's fine. Roll up the window. And then a second, you know, a few seconds later, it rolls down again. And she tells me, she tells me three times. So I eventually get in the car and I had to explain to her, sweetheart, if I shut off the engine, you will be a baked potato. You know, by the <laughs> By the time I get back into the car. <laughs> That's good. By the time I get back into the car, because it's a slow pump, it takes about, you know, five, six, eight minutes in order to fill this, 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 you know, um, I, my truck is an aircraft carrier. So it you is. drive an aircraft yeah, carrier. I do. So you I know how this like. is. And it's uh, got a, I think a 35 gallon tank. So it takes a little while, but I was trying to explain to her, you know, I left the engine running so you'd have air conditioning. In here, well, then she accepted that, but prior to that, she was just reading the little sign, you know, that says <laughs> that you have, telling you you have to shut it off. And I'm just like, look, oh my heavens! But yeah, she'll be here this weekend. It'll be a lot of fun. But you've got a good, we've got a couple of good ABS moments today. I think. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah, we absolutely do. So, you know, this this ABS moment is one that we have to thank producer Matt. For this one. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it, it is, it's happening across the country, but I wanted to let everybody know uh, that if you believe in gender mutilation surgery, yeah. you can go to California because not only are they a sanctuary city for abortion, they are now a sanctuary city or sanctuary state yeah. for the uh, gender reassignment surgery, whatever that means. Um, so if you want to mutilate your child's body, feel free to go to California because you'll not, uh, nobody's going to stop you. And you can do that horrific, horrific procedure to your child in California. I mean, could we just go ahead and just slice that state off and let it float away? Could yeah, we? Yeah. Because it's disgusting and it's vile and it's evil. I wouldn't be troubled by this at all. You know, if, if, if California fell off into the ocean there's nothing out there I would really miss. No, <laughs> I, no. I can't. I can't think of anything out there that I would. That I would. Hollywood. Would I miss it? No. No. Not really. San Francisco. No. Nancy Pelosi's district. Not no. at all. No, I can't say that I would. I mean, truly, uh, Will and I flew out there a couple of years ago, and literally when we landed, we got to our hotel, and he was like, "When did you say we were leaving?" I mean, <laughs> literally, we went from the airport to the car the to the Republic. hotel. And in that night, he, yeah. he was like, this is, ooh, I don't like this place. Isn't it amazing to think that Reagan was once governor of yeah. California? Yeah. I mean, it must have been quite delightful. I mean, yeah. it must have been the I mean, it's, it's uh, quite idealized a, place. It's quite a difference between Reagan and Newsom. Oh, gosh. Who has to be, in, to my way of thinking, Newsom is one of the most um, sinister mm -hmm. figures um, there's just absolutely nothing I like about um, Newsom, and just watching him speak, um, the guy's creepy. He's uh, he's 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 very creepy, and uh, and of course he has presidential ambitions. Of course he does. But uh, he he strikes me as another um, Trudeau. I agree with that, and I think I don't know that he's been to Davos and and gone through all of the Great Reset stuff and world. Economic Forum, <clears throat> but he is a very sinister guy, and he just looks like a snake. Yeah, you know, I know some women find him very attractive, and he may be, but I can't get past all of the horrible things he keeps doing. And this new, uh, we're going to be a sanctuary state for you to be able to destroy your child's body, or as a child, if you want to go out there and have this done, that he's okay with this. Yeah, I do know that his family did donate to some Republicans. Who were running for office. So I'm not sad about that. They see what kind of person he really is. Yeah. Uh, but this is very, very bothersome that we have states that feel like uh, we need to announce this to you. Yeah. Um, that, that we're going to be your safe place to do something that's very wicked. Do you do you feel like I don't know? Maybe we have to go to break. How long do we have before we, we have go about to break? five more minutes? <clears throat> um, I. Um, do you do you feel like that Democrats are overplaying their hand in that they don't really 
have the pulse of the country in that it's obvious that the most important issue for them going into the midterms is abortion. And it's one thing for that to be their most important issue, you know, like behind closed doors. Hey, we've got to restore abortion, you know, nationally. But that's not what they're doing. They're they're doing it very openly. They're pushing it very, very openly. You have Stacey Abrams, who might be asked a question running for governor in uh, in in Georgia, and she might be asked a question like, um, um, you know, what about what would be your economic policy? Well, my economic policy would be to make it legal to kill children. Yeah, you know I mean, every answer seems yes. to go back to abortion. That's where that's where their thinking is on absolutely everything. And then this this um, mutilation of children. You would think they would want to keep that very quiet, but they're not. I mean, right. they're they're out. So, do you think that they either a just don't have their their finger on the pulse and they're pushing an issue that most Americans are, are opposed to or don't care about, or do you think that they really do have their finger on the pulse and that they're pushing an issue that really does matter to people? I think, and I'll maybe answer it with the first, I think that they don't have their finger on the pulse. What they do have their finger on the pulse of is power. And all they care about is getting reelected. And so they're going to say the most outrageous, outlandish things, but because they're so ignorant in their blind, brazen desire to maintain their control, they'll do whatever it takes. And so I think they're that, that just they're depraved, but it seems reasonable to them yeah. because they're depraved. And so I think they don't have their finger on the pulse. I think they're being told, as we know, by all the their people, their marketing people, their campaign managers, you need to do this. If you want to win, then this is what you need to do. Um, but I think it is all in an attempt, as it always is, to keep power mm -hmm. because that's what they're drunk on and that's what they're in love with. And they don't care who it hurts. Uh, and it just reveals their vile, evil, wicked human nature. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I could be completely wrong about that, but that's just, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's an extraordinary thing because um, um, I'm quite shocked at not that they would push these things, not that they would do them, but that they would be so brazen about mm -hmm. doing them. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, for instance, you had, I think it was yesterday, Biden said that um, he will support abortion right up to birth. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's just pretty amazing that these people are. But this this actually dovetails nicely with our topic on the show mm -hmm. today. Because it has to do with population control. Absolutely. And how about this? Let's take a break. And then we will come right back and we'll dive into finishing up an excellent series on the World Economic Forum. And not just Klaus Schwab, but all the sinister things that went into making this what it is. So stay with us. We will be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. See, I can see that out of the corner of my eye. Welcome back. Uh, we are going to dive in. It is Friday. <laughs> Alabama played like garbage on last weekend. Except for um, Bryce Young. Bryce Young can sling awesome. it all over the He's yard. He's the best quarterback in the country by far. From Not Chris even close. Shaver. Not even close. He is unbelievable. But what is he going to do behind the line? He, there's nothing he can do right now. No, and the, the defense played horribly. I mean, it was three games in a and row. And the referees were pretty... Uh, Home cooking. Unbelievable. I'm sorry. But cooking. in all fairness, um, uh, Hendon Hooker was awesome in that yeah. game. So was uh, that receiver, um, Hyatt, five touchdowns. They brought their who best Who seemed to be game. playing in a different zip code mm -hmm. from our defensive backs, you know, the whole yes. game. But yes. So so got to hand it to the volunteers for finally ending 15 years of suffering. But it's just going to restart again the next time we this play This is them. what I say. I mean, so, I, I've already got my cigar for next time. I really right. don't, but I will get one. And I'll remember that I said this. Anyway, 
Okay, because we're going to destroy Mississippi State tomorrow only because they got yelled at every day. Just like day. the World Economic Forum. Absolutely. So we're going to dive in. We did a deep dive on Klaus yeah. Schwab. It's the only thing about this whole thing that makes it feel better yeah. is if you say his name, Schwab. Schwab. Uh, because it's very sinister, Yeah. right? So let's get to the heart of something that you pointed out to me. I did download all of the little... Yeah. white papers, whatever. But this one, this Kissinger report, and I know it's in all of them, but this is the one that I was able to read, is unbelievable. Yeah. So talk to us about that. Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's back up just a little further. And then when we get to the Kissinger report, I, I want you to tell our audience your knee jerk, you know, to reading that. But okay. just just by way of giving, we, we touched on this in a, in a previous episode, but we want each one of these episodes to, to be able to stand independently of, of others in case you miss those. What you, what you have in, in, in terms of the, we'll call it the intellectual genealogy of, okay. um, of these ideas, of this organization, the World Economic Forum, you have uh, the founding of a, um, a think tank and a, a kind of an elitist think tank in 1968 called the Club of Rome. Now, the Club of Rome is, of course, located in Zurich, Switzerland. <laughs> They're not located in Rome. But the Club of Rome is all these academics and a few world leaders and some businessmen and this kind of thing. And their focus, they said, was, look, the the uh, world leaders are driven by the concern, concerns of constituents they're driven by the desire to be reelected and they're not paying attention to the much bigger global issues now to that extent we might agree and say okay well there's some truth to that right. you know that's that's uh so far i can track with you except the way they say it is that they have utter disdain for um the electoral process, democracy, the will of the people, they don't care. They're indifferent. And it's because they are true elitists. They're true elitists. They believe they're better than you. They believe they're better than me. They believe that they are, uh, you know, have a birthright to make decisions for the rest of us. Everybody on planet Earth, this is the way they think. So as I've called them, they're like the HOA from hell, the Homeowners Association <laughs> From hell is what they are. They, you know, I, I used an example in a previous episode that when I was moving in some time ago into a, uh, a neighborhood that had a homeowners association, the president of the homeowners association comes over and introduces himself to me. And it initially it was like, well, this is very nice. It's like the welcome wagon. Hey, welcome to the neighborhood. But then it became clear that he was there. That was all, you Subterfuge. know, that, yes, that was all just the 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 uh, uh, a way of cloaking the real agenda, which was to come and tell me what the rules of the HOA are. Now I already got those when I when I bought the house, right? So I already knew that. But he was there to reiterate them and to tell me what I could and couldn't put in my front yard, and uh, you know, which really got my back up. Well, this is Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. So sixty eight, the Club of Rome is founded with the intent of addressing big global issues. They produce a white paper in 1970 called The Predicament of Mankind. Now, you've read that and people can download it online. It's about 30, I think it's 31 pages. It's poorly written, as we said in the previous episode. Um, but in it, they're laying out what they believe the, the problems of mankind are, which mostly deal, the, the predicament of mankind, which mostly deal with environmental issues. So the white paper is saying to Pete, is saying, look, we need for there to be an organization um, and we need for there to be serious study on these problems. We're just simply proposing that the way to address the big issues, which we at the Club of Rome have raised, is by the founding of a kind of committee, an executive arm, that not only studies the issues, but then seeks to implement them. So... That is produced in 1970, the, the predicament of mankind. In 1971, the World Forum is founded. Now, it would later change its name to the World Economic Forum. But Klaus Schwab 
would form in 1971, um, the World Forum, and then in 1972, so we're moving down our timeline, mm -hmm. In 1972, you have The Limits of Growth that is published. And that has four authors, one of the most prominent, or at least the outspoken of which, is a man by the name of Dennis Meadows. He's a, a graduate of MIT, and he's a professor emeritus at the University of um, Connecticut, I believe. But Limits, The Limits to Growth, that book would sell roughly... 30 million copies. Which that just astounds me. Yeah, yeah, it really does. That it sold that many copies, but anyway. Uh, and you can download a PDF of yes. that online as well. And that's that's not 31 pages um, like Predicament of Mankind. That's, you know, maybe a 300-page book. But um, this book is produced by the scientists who, again, with this kind of elitist mentality, we're the high priests of, of, of society. And I... I forget who said this some time ago, but um, so I'm not sure exactly who I'm quoting, but the quote went, ran something like this. Whoever gets to tell the creation story, they are the high priests mm. of society. Mm. So the high priests of society today are the scientists. You know, yesterday, I believe it was maybe in the last week, Anthony Fauci, who we love on this show. You know, I'd um, love he's to, our favorite. I'd love to carve his face into that pumpkin, <laughs> you know, right there. But Anthony Fauci says something to the effect of, wouldn't it be wonderful if the world were governed by scientists? It would be absolutely awful if it were governed by scientists. By and large, it almost is governed by scientists, meaning that scientists are advisors on absolutely everything. You're even seeing this in ways that are bizarre. Um, you know, in sports, it's Moneyball. You know, mm -hmm. so now, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've heard Chris say this, or if you've noticed it yourself, but there's they, they talk constantly about analytics. Yes. Even in football. Now, you heard it in baseball, and it's not to say that, that the science, the stats can't be useful, but, um, you know, you're hearing some old school commentators who are saying, you know why they lost that game, don't you? Because that coach looked at the analytics, and instead of being a coach, he decided to hide behind the analytics, mm. which told him that right here he should kick a field goal right. rather than going for it on fourth down you know, or whatever. Right. So you're seeing that, that increasingly decisions, even in sports, are being you know, outsourced to someone other than the coach, which begins to raise interesting questions as to why do we even have a coach to begin with? You know, in other words, if this can all be done on a smartphone, right. then what's the point? And um, and if somebody's out there is listening and saying, look, you know, Larry, the data is extremely helpful in those situations, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. But a coach, you know, your son, you know, plays for UNC and he's about to get cranked up and uh, and playing and we look forward to following him on this show. Um, this year, um, you would hope that his coach has not reduced him to a a line mm -hmm. of data, right. but goes, you know what? Um, you know the 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 analytics say right here that we should go to X player, but you know what? I, I, I know Chris is. Uh, um, excuse me. Will. Will. Excuse me. Um, uh, Will is clutch in these situations and they don't, the computer doesn't know that. Right. I know his character. I know I know that he's going to be the guy, you know, right here. And and you know, the point being that outsourcing everything from sports on up to governance to computers which are cold, um which are unfeeling, they have no spirits, um they have no sympathy, they have no compassion. Uh, and of course, it's scientists, you know, who are behind a lot of that, who, as I've pointed out with guys like Klaus Schwab, what I find kind of disturbing about these guys is that I don't think they're, they're necessarily that bright. Now, You've said that, and that's a very interesting point. Yeah. I, what I mean by that is, listen, I'm not prepared to enter into a debate with them on, um, their fields, where they're they're very learned, they're an inch wide and a mile deep. But when you begin reading a guy like Klaus Schwab, as I've as I've pointed out, I think that these days, when it comes to something like science, people punt when they shouldn't. 
they feel inadequate to engage on an issue because they think it's over their head, when a lot of it is um, terminology and such that is meant to alienate. Mm, yes. Where you feel that yes. you are outside of your depth. Mm. And um, and you think you're not, you're, you're not um, prepared, you know, equipped to adjudicate on an issue, to make a sound judgment. So... Uh, you end up, you know, uh, abdicating any kind of authority or say in what happens to you. This can happen in a doctor's office. You know, um, does does my physician know more about the human body and uh, medications and so forth than I do? Well, of course, but there's there are there are other things. But I know how I feel. Yeah. And I know that I've tried this medication and it didn't work for me. And I and I know how this one makes me feel. And I I sense when maybe he or she is saying, you know, look, the data says there's nothing wrong with you, but I know there is mm. because I know how I feel. You know, so everyone I think on some level can relate to that. And the, the more intelligent, you know, physicians know that too. And hence the reason they listen carefully, right. you know, to what you're telling them. But I find that these guys that we're talking about, you know, World Economic Forum types, a number of these scientists, and listen, I say this as an individual who was engaged with a lot of scientists, um, top scientists uh, throughout the world. And, and legitimately top scientists. Yeah, legitimately not top. self-anointed caretakers. Yes, individuals who are acknowledged mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, members of the Royal Society and this kind of thing, people at uh, you know, place like you know Tufts University and Harvard and and uh, so on. But I'm also reminded of um, a top psychologist that I I remember uh, listening to at MIT some years ago who said this. I thought this was a a great line. His name named by the um, he's dead now, sadly. I think he's been dead for maybe ten years. Jerome Kagan, mm. uh, Jerome Kagan, who I I believe was Jewish, um, so not not a Christian. But Kagan, in a lecture that I was listening to at MIT, and um, I think it was there, and I think this was in 01, and Kagan was warning against the very thing I'm talking about. He was warning against yeah. scientists becoming the high priests of society. And he was talking about it within the context of a pill. I don't know if this has been produced or not. Maybe you'll know. But a, a pill that he said that they're working on that he said would be the complete destruction of society. He says it's a pill that removes guilt. Mm. And he said guilt serves an important function. You did something you shouldn't do. You feel guilty about it. But he says it's like a morning after pill. Mm. You went on a bender. You, you slept around. But you pop that pill and you no longer feel guilt about it. Maybe this is what Xanax is or something. I, I don't I, know. I don't know. But yeah. But, um, but he says, but you suddenly don't feel that. He says, if such a pill hits the market... It could be the end of society as we know it because guilt serves an important function in society. It, it serves an important function for us as individuals. Uh, I, I, I say it's, you know, the, the conscience is the soul's voice uh, of telling us something is wrong here. Maybe it's something that was done to us. Maybe it's something that we did, but where our, our being is crying out and saying this shouldn't have happened or this shouldn't be happening, something along those lines. And Kagan said this, he, which I just thought was a wonderful line. He said, the people, they're telling us all the time to follow the science. He says, science tells us that men are by nature promiscuous. He said, try going home and using that argument with your wife. Mm. <laughs> and uh, which is, a, you know, his way of saying, you, he says, we resist science all the time. Yeah. We defy science all the time. And we need to continue to do so. Just because science says X, there are often very good reasons that we say, but no, we're not going to do that. So when we're talking about the World Economic Forum, you know, being founded in 1971, the following year, the, um, the limits, uh, limits to Growth is published. And the Limits to Growth is really focusing, Amy Beth, it's, it's, it's focusing on um, population control. Now let's. Now we're coming to you because predicament of man. Again, our timeline, 1970. The predicament of mankind. Excuse me. You have the limits to growth. 1972. Is it coincidence that 1973 is Roe v. Wade? I do not believe so at all. 
I, 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 I don't believe it all. And then the year after that is NSSM 200, which stands for National Security Study Memorandum hmm. 230, uh, otherwise known infamously as the Kissinger Report. Now, the Kissinger Report, published in 1970, it's more explicit than these others that we're talking about, and it's because it was never meant to be seen by the public. NSSM 200, the Kissinger Report, was a classified memo put together by Kissinger and a team of researchers on his behalf as a memo to the President of the United States um, warning of what they saw as a major problem. And that problem was... Population. <laughs> yes. The problem are the people. And... You know, I know that it was it was Meadows who said that we were six billion too many yeah, on this planet. We need to reduce the population but, by know, six to seven billion people. Obviously. I mean, and so how do you do that? But I think when you pointed that out to me last week or the week before, before I started reading, especially this one, um, you think, hmm, that's very interesting. And then you read the Kissinger report, and all I can think, the word that came to my mind was they're obsessed with population yes, control. They're, they're absolutely obsessed. they're absolutely obsessed. They see it in everything, everywhere they look. And it is not different than I'm reading a book about the war against the weak. It's a book about eugenics. And it's that same mindset that we know better than you, dummies. And we're going to we're these self-appointed guardians of the planet, the guardians of the galaxy to borrow from that whatever that movie is, Disney, I don't know. And they're going to take it upon themselves to handle the problem. Yeah. And so I thought it was very coincidental. I don't know how they planned it. I would love to know what you think, how this all worked out, that that next year, here we have Roe v. Wade. Well, I I can't prove this part. This part is, everything I've told you so far is utterly factual. Yeah. Um, this part is speculation on my part. The predicament of mankind and the limits to growth... Those aren't books that probably your mother, your grandmother, you know, were reading. Those were, you know, academic books. And when I and I even wonder about the thirty million dollars, thirty million uh, copies sold figure on limits to growth because I suspect that a lot of those are kind of like Schwab's Great Reset and mm -hmm. so on. Which those books I don't have them right here, but we we we've seen them. We've had them on the show, and they look like, as I say, they were printed at Kinko's. You know, quick right. copy. <laughs> yes. There's there's no indices in them. The cover is as plain as can be, and they look like the sort of thing that might they might have boxes of them sitting out at a conference you attend and hand them out. Maybe that way you reach your 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 thirty million number because this isn't the Pelican Brief. It isn't um, Da Vinci Code. It isn't you know one of those kinds of books that were massive you know bestsellers. So I I'm not quite sure how they calculate that number. Uh, but regardless, th the book was highly influential in World Economic Forum type circles, meaning among a, an elitist set, they're reading this. They are. This is this is for them a handbook like good to great is mm -hmm. to um, you know the business. There's not a businessman that I bump into who hasn't read good to great, a successful one. Right. Doesn't mean the book made them successful, but it means they those are guys that are coming out of that that kind of training. They've been equipped that way, and and good to great is a handbook. They're all expected to read when they're getting an MBA or a business degree. Well, Lemons to Growth is that kind of book for this elitist secular, and, and I really want to get to that, a uh, secular set, um, which is to say godless set. And its emphasis is on you know, reducing the population. So to me, it says the late 60s and the early 70s, and this is the speculative part, the late 60s and early 70s, um, among this, um, this kind of, uh, um, shall we say, uh, academic community, mm -hmm. population control was a major theme. It seems very likely to me that Supreme Court justices, and probably more likely their clerks, yeah. 
Uh, people underestimate the degree to which clerks play a major, major role. And I, you know, my son Michael, who went to Yale Law and who is is engaged with that kind of uh, a, you know group of people, he's often reminding me, you know, Dad Kagan probably didn't write that. That was probably written by so and so, or this was probably written by so. You know, people behind the the scenes who are doing all the heavy lifting in terms of the research and so forth, and are preparing a a um, a kind of a summary brief, you know, for a, a, a justice who then goes through and edits it or changes it or whatever they might do. So do I think that a group like that who are coming out of those kinds of universities, that kind of mindset, were reading this stuff and aware of it? Absolutely. So I think that that it undoubtedly influenced the Supreme Court's decision because population control was very much on the agenda at the time, and it would also add in their minds a moral basis for yes, abortion. Yes, that abortion is abortion is like this this meme I saw the other day that shows a train coming, and the train can go one of two ways. One way it hits one person is tied across the. Did you see this? No, I didn't. Okay, one person is tied across the tracks, and then on the other, five people are tied across the tracks. And then the question was, you know, you're the person who can flip the switch, which way the, the train goes. What do you do? Um, well, I don't believe in those scenarios. You know, first of all, that's like the you know Star Trek Kobayashi Maru, you know, um, no win uh, situation scenario. I do believe in a god, but. That's, I think, in their mind, the way they see abortion. They think of abortion as it is it is the lesser evil. And of course, now, where we are in society, as we talked about earlier in this show, they don't even see it as an evil at all anymore. No. Now it's a celebrated, you know, it's a celebrated good. And abortion is like Christmas. But I think that that they would, under those circumstances, in that milieu, they would see abortion as the lesser evil, that this is something that's good for sustainability of the environment and so forth. So again, predicament of mankind, founding of the World Forum in 1971. And Klaus Schwab, you can find him on YouTube saying, an interviewer mentions limits to growth to him, and he very proudly says, we're the ones who promoted it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're the ones who put it out there, and they did, because mm -hmm. they're kind of that executive arm that the, the Club of Rome envisioned. Right. And now we get to how these relate to the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum was inspired by these ideas. And Limits to Growth is not officially, but it's very clear that Limits to Growth is kind of forms a part of their sort of founding mission. Mm -hmm. It's to sort of see that stuff through. We're, he, here's what Limits to Growth says has to be done. We're going to be the ones to see that it gets done. We're the executive committee. We're the, ones, we're the ones who are going to follow all this through. And then, you know, and why we mentioned Kissinger here, Kissinger is important because he was Klaus Schwab's mentor. Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, he went to um, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University where he had Henry Kissinger as a, uh, a fellow German, uh, had him as a, uh, as, as a professor there. And it's clear that that mindset, he shares that mindset with his mentor, although I would say that Schwab isn't half as smart hmm. as Kissinger. Kissinger is highly intelligent. And I think he would be an exception, by the way, to what I was just talking about. Yeah. My sense is with Kissinger that he's superbly educated on all fronts. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think that's true of most of these technocrats. In other words, I would never call Henry Kissinger a technocrat. Yeah, no. Henry Kissinger could come on this show and have a thorough discussion of Talleyrand's policy on the heels of the, uh, you know, the Napoleonic War, you know, something like. <laughs> right, that. I mean, right. he he would be a guy who would uh, who would be able to, um, you know, be able to do that. That's not true. I don't think of some of these others that we're talking about, like a Dennis Meadows, like a Klaus Schwab, like uh, who we mentioned in, uh, in in a previous podcast, Yuval Harari. Mm -hmm. I don't think these are guys who fall into that category. But Kissinger is is dangerously intelligent. Mm. Um, I say dangerously because Kissinger is a mixed bag. There's a lot of stuff about Kissinger that I admire, uh, that I like about a Kissinger. But then because he comes from an utterly secular 
worldview. And ladies and gentlemen, why this matters is because your the basis of your worldview, what you are building on matters. If the first, if your foundation is that there is no God, as you go, as you build on top of that, the, the trajectory gets further and further off of what should be the target, which right. is truth. Right. You're not moving towards truth. You're moving away from truth, whether you recognize it at all. And see, and what's scary about guys like this, when we're talking about the World Economic Forum, is that <clears throat> on the surface, these are nice people. Yes. Superficially, meaning they're not the person who probably kicks your cat or, you know, who, uh, you know, who wants to... Um, you know, uh, drive over your children if they're, you know, you know, getting a Frisbee out in the street. They're probably not going to walk into a, a Hobby Lobby um, with an AR-15. This is, uh, this is not who they are. What makes them dangerous is that they, they worship at the altar of godless ideas. And ideas matter to them more than people. And this is something that I talk about in um, the faith of Christopher Hitchens, this this book right here um, that you know uh, I'm pleased to say got got rave reviews um, because it was what set Christopher Hitchens apart from the other so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sam Harris, who these days is getting a lot of attention, Sam Harris is a technocrat. He falls into the category of what we were talking. No Kissinger. Right there, um, I I love what Lennox calls him, just a smug upstart, <laughs> and um, uh, Richard Dawkins, the Oxford atheist, um, and you know evolutionary biologist, and Daniel Dennett. So those guys are all kind of technocrats. All right, Hitchens alone among them was not a scientist. Hitchens was a guy who had had you know had received third class honors, which is to say, like he graduated with C average. Uh, from Oxford University, but who had received a very solid liberal arts hmm. education. Yeah. So a very, very broadly read in history and philosophy and, uh, and so forth. And Hitchens stood out from them because where they would worship at the altar of ideas, and I think Christopher himself would say that he was one of them, you know, maybe in his Oxford days, but before he died, he was definitely not in that category. Christopher was becoming, he was, he was feeling angst over where the atheist agenda led, where that train was going. And um, so that I'm sitting down with him and I'm having a conversation with him, which you can find online. It's a, uh, I'm talking to him about Peter Singer, the, who is, by the way, a World Economic Forum agenda contributor. Peter Singer is, um, is a philosopher. He's a, a bioethicist at Princeton University. He is an atheist. He's the most consistent atheist I've ever met, philosophically speaking. And I think we made reference to him in a previous um, uh, you know, part of this series. But Singer, of course, understands that atheism leads to the kind of stuff we're talking about. Yes. Because if at the end of the day there's no God to judge your actions in the next life, um, that you did in this life, then why not bump off six or seven billion people? Because they have no more value than anything else. There's no such thing as special creation. There's no such thing as a soul. There's no such thing as hope. No such thing as justice. No such thing as right and wrong. No ultimate right and wrong. They're just the they're just the rules that we collectively agree to that have no more validity than the rules that regulate a colony of ants. You know, they're just they're meaningless uh, ultimately. And, um, and Hitchens would say, look, I don't think I agree with Singer. I'm not sure that I'm prepared to offer you know, intellectual reasons for that. I'm just saying I'm not prepared to equate a human baby with a piglet, which, which Singer was prepared to do and did do. Yeah. So, you know, that's not an ideologue. Singer is an ideologue because Singer, Singer suppresses what his soul would tell him is right in order to worship at the altar of that idea, that ideas matter more than human beings. And if your idea is a godless idea that says that for the earth 
uh, to have viability, that we need to reduce global population, you shrug your shoulders and say, well, as Dennis Meadows has done, as you pointed out, let's reduce the global population by six to seven billion people. Of course, he says, and we'll have to include this you know, somewhere, uh, this video of him. You can find it online. It's about a two-minute video, though you can find a longer, more complete interview with him. When where he says, I hope it can be done peacefully. But these are the kind of people that we're talking about here. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff. So as our audience is listening and they're learning more, and I really do recommend that people at least try to download, if you're going to read any of this, yeah. read the Kissinger report. Um, I well, read it with your knee Let's get your knee jerk to well, that. I, so I read through and I was noticing really kind of starting around maybe point number nine as they did the summary before you get into the paper at large. And, and it started to talk about things that you see Canada dealing with, like there's not going to be enough fertilizer and there isn't going to be enough land. And, and what do we do with this? You know, so you begin to see the parallel and it really sent chills down my spine so that at like every page I'm writing, because I keep coming back to how in the world did they assign themselves as gods of the world easily? Yeah. That you, You've answered that yeah. beautifully because there is no God. So why not become God? Yeah. And it only takes one person to spearhead this diabolical scheme yeah. and, uh, and and get them into this direction. Then everybody else is like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they don't have to have some deep, um, very detailed pedigree. They can just be one of those guys. But when I was reading... Um, about the land, and I was thinking about Canada, and I was thinking about, um, is it Sweden that's going through the same thing with the yeah. farmers? And then you begin to see that the they're talking about, the Netherlands, excuse yeah. me. Then you begin to see the high, th high birth rates, and they're really talking about, well, you know, and this one really bothered me, um, under point 14, and you can read it further into the paper, inadequate information about the availability and means of fertility control which sounds so much like what Planned Parenthood has said from the beginning. You know, yeah. they just they just don't have enough information. Yeah. They just don't know and how babies they, are made. They, they don't know. I mean, they're not they don't you know, they don't understand. Well, the earth has been around if you're an old earth, young earth. Yeah, I'm a young earther, but if if you are, you know, into that sort of thing, we don't know how they're made. Yeah. And we're going to help you. Yeah. Make sure that you know how it's made. So now this idea has gotten into our schools. Yeah. So you see that this is carried down from 1972 and now because I was an abstinence and character speaker, you see that this is happening right now that they're telling our girls, you know, sweetheart, we know that you don't know. <laughs> and we know that you don't want to tell your mom. You know, so you see those kind of things. And so th that's where I really began to mark the paper up. Their inadequate motivation for reduced numbers of children yeah. combined with motivation for many children resulting from still high infant and child mortality and need for support in old age. And it goes on and on from there. But I just, that was when I started to feel sick to my stomach. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really disturbing stuff. And it's, it is very disturbing to discover your government, yes. you know, you know, 40 years ago. Um, was uh, was pushing this and talking about in the Kissinger report that basically we need Planned Parenthood type initiatives yes. in the third world, right? So that we can you know knock off um, you know some of these people who are being born, and uh, this is uh, this is staggering stuff. But again, when we're talking about the World Economic Forum, it isn't just about population control. But I want to drive this point home as it relates to this, because it's a very, very important part of who they are and what they're about. And they're careful about what they say publicly. They are fairly careful. I say careful. They're, they're somewhat careful about what they say publicly. But again, you just go and download The Predicament of Mankind, Club of Rome. You uh, go to that, to the Limits to Growth. You go to, from that to the Kissinger Report. You go from that to 1991, which is the first global revolution. And the first global revolution is basically looking back over the past uh, 20 years and saying, how far have we come in dealing with this issue? And they kind of say, well, you know, not very far. Mm -hmm. we, we're, we're, we're not really making progress here. And we got to step it up because, because this is getting out of hand. The global population just, just keeps increasing and we're going to be in trouble here. 
I don't see any of these people proposing to knock themselves off. They never do, do they? No, it's they so don't. Curious. It's, I mean, it's, it's really all curious. About, you and I need to bump ourselves off. Um, our producer needs to bump himself off. Um, you know, and and what you're seeing, you know, Canada, you know, you have some provinces that are reporting that as many as I think it is five percent of the deaths among the elderly are um, are a result of choosing euthanasia, yes. you know, that these people are, they're these, these centers. It's kind of like an Auschwitz that you voluntarily go to and say, kill me. Um, and this kind of thing that's, that's going on. And I think that a lot of Americans just don't know what's going on. And by the way, I saw that David French, who I dislike immensely, but David French was, no, excuse me, I take this back. I don't take back that I dislike David French, but I take back that it was David French who said this. It was Phil Vischer, I believe it is, the inventor of all things, the creator of VeggieTales, who was condemning um, uh, NRB and saying that NRB, uh, the station on which this is aired on DirecTV, Channel 378, um, that NRB had kind of handed itself over to, you know, basically the Trump agenda which is sheer nonsense. It's uh, I, I'm appreciative of the fact that NRB has taken very seriously a biblical worldview that the time in which we live, that these things have to be fought for. Mm -hmm. And it's not Absolutely. the Trump agenda. This is a biblical worldview. I'm kind of sick of things being called the Trump agenda that are just historic conservatism. Correct. You could have called it Reaganism. You could call it you know, Barry Goldwater, you could call it Edmund Burke. You know, I mean, this, this goes back for, for quite some time. But I mention it here because these things, you could say that they're political. There is a, there's definitely a political agenda among the World Economic Forum. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're trying to say that these things can't be talked about uh, by Christians, what you're saying is that Jesus has a kind of pie chart in which he says this, is, this represents the whole of creation and this sliver right here, this slice of the pie represents politics about which I have nothing relevant to say. Mm. Avoid it. Mm. Don't engage on that front on that issue. That's not the Jesus I know. And uh, um, we're seeing government stepping into areas where government has no business being. Your ABS moment today, the, uh, the Amy Beth automatic braking system moment, you know, deals with the sexualization of children, child mutilation. If your pastor isn't addressing that, go somewhere else. Yes. If your pastor isn't addressing the things that we're talking about, go somewhere else. And I feel very passionate on this subject because... It doesn't mean your pastor is woke, but it may mean he's a coward, or it may mean that he's uninformed because there are plenty of pastors who give what are biblical messages but are irrelevant messages. And what I mean by that is this. If someone, you know, if, if you attend your church and he gives a, a delightful biblical message on John chapter 2, but doesn't relate that to what's going on in the world. And people leave going, well, Jesus could turn water into wine. Hmm. Not sure what that has to do with what's going on right now in the world. I mean, if he's not making the connection, there's a problem. There's a problem there. And you, the pulpits of America, which often led the way from our founding, from the American Revolution straight through World War II, they were often leading the way on this, these issues because they were addressing the godlessness that was going on in the culture. And if it is their duty to be taking the Bible and helping people to see what's happening in the culture through that biblical lens, hmm. that is important. And I'm not sure that a lot of pastors are doing that. And it's why so many parachurch ministries, Fixed Point Foundation, thrives because a lot of people feel like I'm not getting it there. Yes. And if you are a pastor who is addressing it, God bless you for, for having the courage to do it and not getting worried because somebody trashed you on social media or called you a bigot or called you, you know, uh, names because you were supposedly against the environment, you know, or something else. You know, the Bible says that children are a blessing. Nowhere in Scripture does it call them anything other than a blessing. Right. The idea that we should mutilate them, 
I'm mindful of what Jesus said when he says that it is better than a millstone be put around a man's neck and he be cast into the sea than he should cause any of these little ones to sin. That is a serious charge right there. And if you are in favor of the mutilation of children, of the sexualization of children, if you are not standing in the gap to defend children, God's wrath is burns white hot for you. He has nothing but wrath for you until you should repent of it and until you should decide to take a stand for what you're called to do. I mean, this is just... This is just biblical. So to the Phil Vishers, to the David Frenches, to the Russell Moores, uh, to the Beth Moores, who would prefer to punch right, they prefer to criticize people who are seeking to address these things, yep. shame on you. Shame on you. Amen. I agree 100% because, a, and I think it was Augustine, maybe. Um, I'll have to look and see. But if, if it's not us that's filling that void... And, and punching back against culture, biblically speaking, who's it going to be? Yeah. And I, I do not, I agree with you. We are actually visiting a church who is doing a very good job of talking about culture and relating it to, relating the Word of God to what's going on in culture. And it's so refreshing, uh, the boldness with which they speak, because it's rare. Yeah. It's rare. And I think that during, I hate to say it, but I feel like during COVID, some of that, you, you saw that come out a little bit more. Uh, a little more pronounced yeah. uh, with churches shutting down and figuring out how they open back up again and what did they do and what did they say and can we speak against the government? And and then you look at the cabal that was going on with you know Francis Collins and Rick Warren and, oh my goodness, who are you to yeah. say anything against our government? And so you're right. Um, we have to be the ones We've that got to. are speaking up and, and speaking out and talking about what's going on with the World Economic Forum, with the Great Reset and the dire implications for our society that it has. And so I have a question for you as we finish our series on this, um, and you can go find it at The Daily Wire. If you haven't signed up to receive your newsletter, Larry Alex Taunton, um, do so because I look forward to getting it each week, even though you already send me things, which is very, <laughs> very fancy. So. Um, but if you don't, if you haven't gotten it, you're not signed up th- for the newsletter, um, go look at the Daily Wire yeah. and read these articles. I do recommend if you have the time, and even if you don't, make the time. Yeah. Because I think understanding where these white papers were coming from, specifically for me, the one that hit home the most was the Kissinger report. Yeah. Um, and it's on my desk and it's thick and it's dog-eared and I, I'm, I'm shocked by it. But what, what would you have our audience do? What, what one last thing do you want them to know? What's the most important thing that you want them to know? And then are there any other action steps that they can take in order to tell their community, their sphere of influence, so that they too are passing along what they're learning? Yeah, well, I would maybe uh, offer this historical um, analogy. You know, the Russian Revolution wasn't a revolution at all. It was a, it was a coup d'etat. Um, the idea that it was a revolution, which by definition means a popular uprising, is, is Soviet propaganda. They wanted the world to believe it had been a movement of the people to overthrow the czar, but that wasn't the case. We know that the population of Russia at the time of the revolution was about 80% peasant, and they were an inert mass. They did, they did nothing. So it was a small, radicalized dedicated group that seized government. That's what we're seeing right now. We are seeing um, a small, radicalized, dedicated group seizing the levers of power all across society, corporate, big tech, uh, Hollywood, and government, uh, education, all across the board. And right now, I would say that the people are an inert mass that the majority of people are doing. We're not seeing a revolution. We are seeing a coup d'etat, and uh, an ideological coup d'etat. And I think that that the people, their voices have to be heard. You know, they have to be engaging on these things, which means, you know, holding their school boards accountable, taking their kids out of school. Are you nuts? Having your kids in these 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 institutions, uh, it means standing in the gaps in their homes. Uh, it means engaging uh, with the possible consequence 
of suffering, you know, some hardship as a result of what's happening within their places of work. Um, so it means as individuals, it means standing up and saying no. And I'm reminded of you gave a lovely talk yesterday, which we're going to we're going to talk about um, in another episode. But you gave a wonderful talk yesterday at a Latimer House luncheon on the war on children. And you gave this this beautiful picture. It actually is a terrifying picture, but it made it brought this to my mind of a man in a hurricane who's holding on to a tree. And you picture his his feet flapping, you know, in the wind as everything is blowing by him and he's clinging to that tree. And that tree, you know, was his fixed point. It's what kept him anchored. It was the only thing that was going to keep him anchored. And it made it reminded me of, of Blaise Pascal, um, from whom we took our name, Fixed Point Foundation. Blaise Pascal, who said, when everyone is moving towards depravity, it feels like no one is moving towards depravity. But if one man stops, mm-hmm. he shows up all the others and becomes a fixed point. You know, so my feeling is we need people all across society to grab a tree, which is actually grabbing the cross, isn't it? Amen. And as your as your feet are flapping in the wind, you're hanging on to that and you're showing up all the others around you. They begin to see, you know, we're moving. And we're moving towards depravity. So that would be that would be my counsel. Which is outstanding. And we will talk more about that, but that's absolutely outstanding. And I loved, I didn't know that that's where the name Fixed Point yeah. came from. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for listening, for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate you. And thank you for liking the show, sharing it on different social media platforms, and uh, for being a subscriber. We really do appreciate it. So thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Turn out the lights, the party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now? <laughs>